I'd ask if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage uh, for this morning. And uh, we'll be, we're continuing again with our study on the Ten Commandments. We'll be looking at the Seventh Commandment, and uh, it's in Exodus 20, verse 14. But once again, I'm going to read um, all of uh, the Ten Commandments from Exodus uh, 20, verses 1 to 17. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down and serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its timeless truth on our hearts this morning. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Holy God, once again, as we approach your holy word, Lord, as we see your moral will, we realize that we fall immeasurably short of what you have commanded. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning to see the reality and the full extent of, of what you are calling us to do in this seventh commandment. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Lord, as we see that, that, um, that adultery is, is an assault against the institution of marriage that you created. Lord, I pray that you would help our marriages to be strong. Lord, as a corrective against the assaults of the enemy. Lord, and, and as a a way that we can exalt the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would help each one of us to be diligent to fight for our marriages and for marriage in general. Lord, I thank you for the ways that you are working these truths into our hearts and that, that we in this church, by your grace, have a, a, a desire to, to do this, to obey you in this, and, and to uphold the sanctity of our marriages. 
Lord, we cannot do this at all to any extent unless you work in us. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look at this passage this morning, as we think about some various ways that, that we can protect our marriages and marriage in general, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to not just to be, be hearers of the word, but to be doers as, as well. Lord, to put these things into practice. Lord, that we might exalt your name in this dark and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Marriage is a dying institution. Quipped one Hollywood starlet who was known for her promiscuous lifestyle. She continued, I don't think we should live our lives in relationships based off old traditions that don't suit our world any longer. Well, Keith Abrose, who was a contributor to Fox News and a, and a psychiatrist, wrote an article affirming her statement. He said, well, I'm not certain marriage ever suited most people who tried it. From what I hear in my psychiatry office and from what I hear from other psychiatrists and psychologists and from what my friends and relatives tell me and show me through their behavior and from the fact that most marriages end either in divorce or acrimony, marriage is, as has been the case for decades now, a source of real suffering for the vast majority of married people. He says, I can't help looking with suspicious disapproval at anything that depletes energy, optimism, mood, and passion to the extent that marriage does. He says, it is without a doubt one of the leading causes of major depression in the nation. Smart, aware people feel consciously or unconsciously disempowered from the moment they say, I do. Human beings are just not built to desire one another once we have flossed in the same room for a hundred times and shared a laundry basket for thousands of days. Very few normal people who live together long enough want to keep on doing it. The fact that millions of Americans take vows to stay in marriages for life and then leave those marriages once, twice, maybe three times has so trivialized and mocked those vows that many silently chuckle to themselves while listening to them. It's only a matter of time now, he says. Marriage will fade away. We should be thinking about what might replace it. What should come up? We should come up with something that, that improves the quality of our lives and those of our children. And we know if we know what's good for us. What a horrible and bleak understanding of marriage. That was made several years ago, but perhaps not surprisingly, Ablow actually lost his medical license over allegations earlier this year on, on grounds of sexual abuse from three patients. They filed civil lawsuits against him and settled out of court for an undisclosed figure. So he was revealing his, his thoughts about marriage and, and about purity, not just with his words, but also with his actions. Al Mohler quoted a, a Generation X spokesman. That's, that's well, I'm at the, I'm the I'm, I guess I'm sort of at the later stage of, of Generation X, the later age of Generation X at, at age 50. But this, this, this uh, Generation X spokesman said, we are the first generation in which adultery is now not an issue. 
We have so little expectation of, mon of monogamy or faithfulness that adultery is just no big deal. And the statistics sadly reinforce the bleak picture. In a study published in 2014 by the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy, 41% of marriages, and 41% of marriages, one or both partners admit to infidelity, whether physical or emotional. Even more shockingly, the study showed that 74% of men and 68% of women admitted that they would have an affair if they knew that they would never be caught. A Barna poll announced that 44% of American adults believe that adultery is morally acceptable. And even more shockingly, 4% of those who claim to have a biblical worldview agree that anyone who claims to have a biblical worldview would agree that adultery or immorality of any kind is acceptable is shocking, or at least should be shocking to us. And all of this is repugnant. But maybe it's, it shouldn't be as shocking as we think. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house and saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers. Well, you know what happened next. In 2 Samuel 11, we have recounted for us the adultery of King David, one of the most beloved men in the Bible, and the man after God's own heart. The reality is that if David committed adultery, but for the grace of God, any one of us could. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12 if David committed adultery, any one of us could. And if we're honest, we'll admit that we have. We look at what God's word says about the reality of adultery, about the reality of what is required in the seventh commandment. Yet again, as we continue our study of the Ten Commandments, we see that the moral standard of the commandments is more comprehensive than first appears, more challenging than first appears. The Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery, Exodus 20.14. The word that's translated adultery here refers broadly to conjugal infidelity, to marital unfairness faithfulness to physical intimacy with someone who is married to someone else. And the punishment for disobedience for adultery under the Mosaic Covenant was death. The command not to commit adultery is part of God's moral law that was written on the heart of man at creation in the covenant of works. And though the heart of man was corrupted by the fall, 
And the consciences of men and women became seared through wanton sin. They still intuitively know what is wrong. God's moral law is renewed in the new covenant of Christ in Christ's blood as well. We read in Jeremiah 31, 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. As our Lord did so powerfully and repeated throughout his earthly ministry, he taught the full meaning of the law. The seventh commandment is no exception. Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is, this is the, the greatest sermon that was ever preached. Matthew chapter 5. Looking at verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with, with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So Jesus amplifies here both the requirement and the punishment of the law. He's showing what God's moral law fully means. God's moral law does not just deal with adultery in the body, but adultery in the heart. And breaking God's moral law does not just mean physical death. It means spiritual death in hell. So it's not enough to say that I have never committed the act outside of the bonds of holy matrimony. Noticing that someone of the opposite sex is attractive is not lust. However, it easily, so easily moves into lust. If you find yourself going back for a second look or taking a first long look, it's a pretty good sign that you have crossed the line into adultery in your heart. So in the seventh commandment, as we saw in the sixth, when the most wicked sin is explicitly forbidden, it represents all of the sins in that category, all of the sins of that kind. Remember, house cats and lions are of the same animal kind. Deal with the cat before it devours you. Let me repeat the quote from Thomas Colquhoun. As he explains in his treatise on the law and the gospel. Where great sins are expressly forbidden, all the lesser sins of that sort are forbidden, and they are prohibited under the names of grosser sins in order to render them the more detestable and horrible in our view, as also to show us how abominable even the very least of them is in the sight of an infinitely holy and righteous God. 
So under the seventh commandment, we are not to commit adultery in word or in deed or in thought. And once again, there are express sins forbidden and duties required under this commandment. Questions 77 and 78 of Benjamin Keach's Baptist Catechism show us both sides of the matter. The Catechism asks, what is required in the seventh commandment? Answer, the seventh commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. And the next question, what is forbidden in the seventh commandment? Answer, the seventh commandment forbids all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. So clearly, we must strive to maintain moral purity. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about what sins are forbidden under the seventh commandment. It would be inappropriate and imprudent in, in mixed company and with, with children here. And, and furthermore, the world is inventing more wickedness and more lasciviousness as we go on. It's, it would be impossible to keep up with it. How many letters of the alphabet do we need in order to, to describe immorality? I'll sum it up with this. Engaging in any sexual thoughts, speech, or behavior outside of marriage is forbidden in the seventh commandment. I'll say it again. Engaging in any sexual thoughts, speech, or behavior is, outside of marriage is forbidden in the seventh commandment. Any expression of sexuality outside of the beautiful, God-designed union of conjugal intimacy within a, a complementarian covenant relationship that reflects Christ and the church falls under the category of adultery. Now, I'm going to unpack that statement. That's going to be the, the, really the focus for this message. But again, the bottom line of the seventh commandment, as Thomas Watson declares, is this. The thing implied is that the ordinance of marriage should be observed. The ordinance of marriage should be observed. Now, it's not a sacrament like the Roman Catholic Church teaches, but it is an ordinance. It is a, a God-ordained ordinance given by God. And not everyone is going to be married. It is, it is the, the general practice, instead of the children, most people will one day get married. Now, given the assault on marriage in the general culture, that could change. But I trust that for the church, for, for God's chosen people, that, that marriage will continue to be the norm. And that there are some people who are called to singleness. Paul, in fact, says that, that he wishes that all were as he is. And so we're going to address, as we, we talk about this, single people, you don't need to tune out. This is for you as well. But again, this is, this is, this is about upholding the sanctity of marriage. If you have a high view of marriage in general, and of your marriage in particular, adultery is unthinkable. 
And, and so not only is the protection of marriage the, the focus of the seventh commandment, but as we're going to see, the, the marital relationship also provides a means of protecting itself. It's not enough just to avoid adultery. Obeying the seventh commandment means promoting and protecting the sanctity of marriage. And again, that's what I'm going to focus on here this morning. So then we need to ask ourselves, how can, how can I protect marriage in general and my marriage in particular? And five key points that I want to walk through here that, that will, will help you to protect your marriage and marriage in general. Number one, understand complementarity. Now, if you're going to understand complementarity, you probably need me to understand, explain to you what the word complementarity means. Well, complementarity simply means that the roles of husbands and wives are complementary. Now, this doesn't mean that they pay each other compliments, which they should. It also doesn't mean that it's free. It's not. It means that, 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 that the, the roles of husbands and wives in marriage are meant to work in harmony with each other. Now, the complementarian position is, is contrasted with the egalitarian position. I guess I have to explain that too. Egalitarian is, is from the Latin equal. Now, although the complementarian, it's a little bit of a misnomer because although the complementarian position does teach that, that men and women are equal in who they are, the egalitarian position says that men and women are 100% equal in role. That whatever the, the husband does, the wife can do. Whatever the wife does, the, the husband can do. That's what the egalitarian position is. is that they're, 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 even biology reveals that that's not true. There, but there is, according to the egalitarian position, there is no differentiation between roles of husband and wife. But under the complementarian position, which is the biblical position, husbands and wives are called to work together, each with unique and equally important functions. The Lord made men and women equal in terms of who they are, but different in terms of role. In, in marriage, God created men to lead and women to follow that lead. Now this, this pattern that people are wrongly teaching that, that this, this idea of, of leadership and, and submission in marriage, people are, 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 are wrongly saying that this, this is a result of the fall. But it's not, it actually begins at creation. When God said that he would make woman in Genesis 2.18, he said that it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. God made the woman as a suitable helper for the man. And it's 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says that the woman is not to teach or to exercise authority over a man. He appeals to the created order. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, 1 Timothy 2, 13. So how does this work out in, in marriage? And, and, and how does this actually help to protect marriage? Well, men are called to set the spiritual tone in marriage. 
Men are called to diligently care for the spiritual, emotional, physical, and mental well-being of their wives. And men are called to take the initiative in leading. Husbands, are you intentionally and carefully caring for your wife? Especially spiritually. Are you bringing the word of God to bear? Your marriage, your family. Are you aware of your wife's strengths and her weaknesses? What are you doing to help your wife to, to find opportunities to serve with her strengths and help, to help her to overcome her weaknesses? Do you pray for your wife in these things? Are you praying for her to overcome her weaknesses? Does your wife know where you're leading your family? Are, are you being a trustworthy leader? Men, if you do not lead lovingly or don't lead at all, you are putting your wife in a very, very difficult position. Because in your sinful tendency to fail to lead as the Lord would have you, you cater to your wife's sinful tendency to usurp your authority. And so if you do not lead your wife lovingly, she is going to be more prone to rebel. And you're both going to be sinning. And if you don't lead at all, she is going to lead you and you will both be sinning. Again, in terms of essence, there is no difference between men and women. Men do not have any more value than women. Men and women are both made in the image of God. Men are not any better at relating to God than women. Men are not any more moral than women. Men are not any smarter than women. Men are not superior to women in any way whatsoever when it comes to who they are. They are co-heirs of the grace of life. 1 Peter 3, 7. However, and I cannot reinforce this enough, men and women are called to perform different roles. Just imagine for a moment couples ballroom dancing. Don't imagine me ballroom dancing. It'll be ugly. But one wife is being dragged all over the dance floor with, with her husband shouting at her for making mistakes. Another husband is being dragged all over the dance floor while his wife shouts insults at him for his mistakes. A another couple is wrestling over who's going to drag the other one over the dance floor. And they're each painfully stepping on each other's toes. Another couple is just rocking back and forth in one spot. But there's another couple gracefully gliding across the dance floor, every move perfectly synchronized. Together they move like one. That's what our marriages should look like. And when you see a couple with a marriage like that, it's sadly very rare. Stop and watch and ask them for dancing lessons. Now I need to think about a couple of peculiar or particular situations here. If you're married to an unbeliever, all of this is, is of course very painful for you to hear. 
And you are going to need help from the church figuring out what this is going to look like in your personal circumstances. And you're going to need a lot of encouragement from the church along the way. And if you're here unmarried this morning, well, obviously, this does not apply directly to you yet. But you still must be seeking to develop godly character for your present personal circumstances. And one day your circumstances just might change. In the meanwhile, are you seeking to honor those who are in authority in your life? Because if you're not obeying, if you, if you do so, you're not only obeying what, what God has called you to do, but you are also preparing for marriage. A man who does not know how to submit does not know how to lead. A woman who does not submit to her parents will not submit to her husband. And so understanding complementarity is vital to protecting marriage. But even though God clearly gave husbands and wives work to do in marriage, there's a lot more work, there's a lot more than just work in marriage. We also need to, second point, cultivate companionship. Cultivate companionship. At creation, we see that God gave the wife to the husband for companionship. When, when God said, it is not good that the man should be alone, I'll make a helper fit for him, he wasn't just making a helper for Adam. He was making a companion for Adam. Men, your wife is suited to you. Not just in generic terms, but personally, uniquely, intimately. Wife, your husband is suited to you also personally, uniquely, and intimately. Everything about the person that you are married to, personality, gifting, strengths, weaknesses, everything is planned by the sovereign God, not just for them, but also for you. Now, when, when I was, for, for those who were around when, uh, when, when I was getting close to getting married, you knew that I was walking about three feet off the floor. I was, I, was, I guess the word is Twitter-pated. And I didn't need anyone to tell me how perfectly suited Jane was for me. But I had no idea just how comprehensively Jane is suited to me. And, and for those of you who have been married for a lot longer than I have, I'm sure you can testify in even greater ways than I can just, just how perfectly matched you are according to God's sovereign plan. God's love for you and for your spouse in Christ Jesus. Next to your salvation, the person you are married to is the greatest gift that God has given you. Puritan Thomas Gattaker said that there is no relationship more near, more entire, more needed, more kindly, more delightful, more comfortable, more constant, more continual than the relationship of man and wife. 
Now, I married my best friend. Now, whether you see it or not, that is true in your marriage as well. I pray that you will see it that way. Proverbs 5.18 says that you are to rejoice in the wife of your youth. Husband, I pray that you are rejoicing in the wife of your youth till death do you part. Wife, I pray the same for you and your husband. Joel Beakey says that the true marital friendship is the personal bond of shared life in Christ. And I pray that that is true for all of our marriages. Now, maybe you're here this morning as, as someone who is, has faced the, the great grief and the, the great pain of losing a spouse in death. I can't imagine how much pain that experience is. I, I know men who have, have lost their wives many years ago or wives that have lost their, their, lost their husbands many years ago and they still feel that pain acutely every day. But there is a hope that comes through the gospel. A hope not just, just to be reunited with, with, your, with your loved ones, in heaven, because there is, there is no marriage in heaven, but that you both will be united with Christ, and and that you will be able to to re relate to each other in a, in a way that is is infinitely better than you could relate to each other here, because sin is is over; it's done with. So preach that to yourself as you grieve. Know that you grieve, but not like those who have no hope. And maybe you're here this morning as, as somebody who is, is experiencing the, the grief of divorce. That you did not, when you remember back to your wedding day, you, you fully set out to, to, to obey those, those commandments, those, the vows that, that you made before the Lord. But somewhere along the way, things fell apart. The, the wheels fell off. And somewhere along the way, the sin became so great. Not just the sin of your spouse, but your sin as well became so great that, that it, it resulted in a split. And it's my prayer for you that you will find the healing and the comfort also that can be found in the gospel. That if there's any bitterness and, and unforgiveness, that, that you will remember the forgiveness that you have received in Christ and gladly extend that forgiveness to the, the, the person you're now divorced to, from. So again, this is, this is something. Marriage is, is something that, as this, this most intimate of human relationships, it has the capacity to, to bring us the greatest joy that you can have in a human relationship, but also has the capacity to bring you the greatest pain of any human relationship. And you need to understand that you have to fight for marriage. Fight for marriage in general and fight for your marriage. Don't be lazy. A good marriage takes work, hard work. It means striving against your own laziness. It means striving against your flesh. It, it, it takes dying to yourself. 
daily. It means sharing yourself, all of yourself, with this person that you have entered into, entered into a covenant relationship with. And, and as you do this, and as you invest yourself in your marriage, you will increasingly experience the joys of marriage. And another Puritan, Richard Baxter, wrote of this kind of sharing. He said, it is, it is a mercy to have a faithful friend that loveth you entirely and is as true to you as yourself, to whom you may open your mind and communicate your affairs. And who will you be ready, who will be ready to strengthen you and divide the cares of your affairs and family with you and help you to bear your burdens and comfort you in your sorrows and be the daily companion in your life and partaker of your joys and sorrows. Don't you long for a marriage like that? Maybe you had a marriage like that and you lost it through neglect. Maybe you've never had it. Maybe it's what you want but don't know how to get it. Well, of course, none of us have arrived. But, but there are couples here whose marriages are exemplary. Go to them. Ask them. Ask them what they're doing to cultivate companionship. Ask them for dancing lessons. Marriage takes time. A good marriage takes time, regular time, intentional time, built into the, the framework and the rhythm of your life. A good marriage takes conversation, open, honest, intentional conversation. A good marriage takes trust, making yourself vulnerable to someone who will at times hurt you and even hurt you deeply. And perhaps above all, a good marriage takes grace. Takes grace, the grace that you have received in the gospel. Overlooking minor offenses and offering forgiveness for larger offenses. A good marriage takes the gospel. You cannot do any of this without receiving forgiveness yourself and without the strengthening power of the Holy Spirit. Again, are you here this morning as a singleness, as a single person? Now, I know that singleness can be hard. I didn't get married until I was 42. But singleness can be good. You have unique opportunities as a single person that you will not have once you're married. Now, for many years, I didn't have the companionship of a wife, but, but I have been so blessed over those years with companionship in the church. I have enjoyed sweet fellowship with brothers and sisters. I've been welcomed into many families and I still enjoy those relationships, but they have changed now that I'm married. I didn't miss out when I was single. Our Lord Jesus was single. Did he miss out? And there's other blessings of a singleness as well that I spoke of earlier. In, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that the single person is able to focus single-mindedly on serving God, whereas the married person is then focused on, on serving and pleasing their, their spouse. I remember so well when I was living in Australia, and I was, I was, I'd been struggling for, for a season with, with discontentment and singleness. 
And I remember I, I took the dog for a walk and I was, I was wrestling with, with God in my heart over these things and, and, and saying, but I, I don't want to be single. But what I realized is that for that day, I had been given the gift of singleness. Again, to serve God in a way that I could then, that it wouldn't be if God provided me with a wife. And as I began to preach that to myself, the, the discontentment went away. And, and I, I, I more intentionally set about the things that, and, the, and the calling that God had in my life to, to serve him in, in ways single that I would not have been able to had I been married. Singles, for today, you have been given the gift of singleness. And if you are feeling discontent, it means, discontented, it means that you are not seeking to serve God in your singleness as intentionally as you can or, or ought. Single people, I also want to encourage you to be intentionally preparing for marriage. To be seeking to, to live a life that is, is godly. It's Christ-centered so that you are going to attract another person whose life is godly and Christ-centered. I remember a good friend of mine years ago was, was just really, his life was just so characterized by discontentment. And I said to him, brother, you do not want to marry the woman who you would attract right now. But sadly, he, he, he ended up marrying an unbeliever. So you need to seek wisdom. Make a commitment and in singles. Make a commitment first and foremost to only marry a believer. Now again, I, not just that, that man, but I know of several people, several men and women who have, have married unbelievers. In some cases, convincing the person, convincing themselves that the person that they were marrying was, was a believer. Our desires are very strong. And we are able to convince ourselves and lie to ourselves more easily probably then we lie to anyone else. But I know of other cases where, where an individual has, has just been, been deceived into thinking that the other person was a, was a Christian. Now God may have, have mercy, as he has with some couples in the church, where that, that, that unbelieving spouse eventually came to faith and, and praised God for what he's doing there. But the pain that... that that these people experience in, in not being able to, to share the, the most important thing in their life with the most important person in their life, the most important human being in their life, is extremely painful. So yes, make a commitment to marry wisely, but, but also remember that the biggest decision that you will make in your life, apart from or next to your decision to follow Jesus, is the person you're going to marry. And the person you marry will dramatically affect your life and your ministry for good or for ill. And my, my, my mentor warned me about this when I was, was in the midst of a very bad relationship. And I am so thankful for the way that the Lord redeemed. And, and eventually, it was many years later, brought Jane into my life. But these were wise words that helped me to marry wisely. I determined that I would rather stay single for the rest of my life than marry poorly. So then, we need to, in order to protect our marriage, we also we need to, to consider complementarity. We also need to cultivate, um, to, to cultivate companionship. 
Well, now we'll get down to, to some, some nitty-gritty stuff here. The third way in order to protect marriage is to maintain conjugal intimacy. Now, I'm going to be discreet here with, with my language. I realize that we're, again, a mixed company and have, have children here. But, but these words, conjugal intimacy, it sounds so mechanical. It sounds so technical, but they refer to something so wonderful. The God-designed physical union of a husband and wife in marriage. God is no prude. God invented physical intimacy. And God's word is remarkably honest about physical intimacy, but it's never indecent in its discussion of physical indecency. Men, I would encourage you to sit down with your wife sometime and read Song of Solomon. Now, there have been efforts to allegorize the Song of Solomon, saying that, that Solomon is speaking of, of Christ in the church. But even if the allegorical interpretation is true, and I'm not saying that it is, the literal meaning is certainly true. Either way, in the Song of Solomon, the relationship between husband and wife is beautifully and poetically represented. Song of Solomon 4.1 says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Now, wives, maybe you don't want your hair compared to a flock of goats. But have you ever seen a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead? It's something to behold. The bride's response to her husband is equally vivid. Chapter 5, verse 4. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. Now, men, maybe we could use a little bit of polishing here, but I think you get the point. God made intimacy in marriage to be enjoyed. Earlier, I quoted Proverbs 5.18. The, the whole verse says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. It continues, May she be a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Be intoxicated with her love. Clearly, God made marital intimacy to be enjoyed. The same is true with, with wives for husbands. When you are rejoicing with your spouse, when you are intoxicated in that love, you are not going to be looking around. Verse 20 continues. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, woman and embrace, embrace the bosom of an adulteress? If you are not rejoicing in your marriage, it points to a problem in your heart. If you're not, you need to ask yourself whether you are discontented with God's gift. And beloved, even the trials of marriage are God's gift to you for your sanctification and for His glory. Are you harboring unforgiveness? Is there some other sin that you are not repenting of? Now, once again, if you are struggling here, please reach out for help. 
whether it's through a pastor or a godly couple who can, can bring God's word to bear in your personal circumstances and bring and pray for you and encourage you in these things. The writer of Hebrews says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Hebrews 13.4 Now the first half of that statement is beautiful, but the second is ugly. Conjugal intimacy, as God has designed it, is glorious. But anything else, any other expression of sexual intimacy other than that between a husband and wife in marriage is a vile corruption of what God has intended. Don't be deceived. Sex is not the problem. Lust is the problem. In answer to, the, to question 138 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, it, it explains that, that conjugal love and cohabitation are required under the seventh commandment by positive implication. Turn with me, please, in your, please, in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I referred to this, this passage earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and verses 1 to 5. I'll just read these five verses. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But, the, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. If the husband does not have authority, over, the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, this is remarkably countercultural in that era, and even in ours today. Paul says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So this is, this is a command. Joel Beakey explains that, that we have a sacred duty to give our sexual affection to, uh, uh, and our bodies to our spouses. He says that, that sexual intimacy is part of our gospel response to God's mercy described in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. But again, we need to ask, what about those who are not married? Well, your body is to be a living sacrifice too. Just turn back to, in one, one chapter to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 8, verses 18 to 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Now, if you are tempted with lust, I would strongly encourage you to memorize 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 and to preach it to yourself. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Preach that to yourself in those times of temptation, all the time. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5, Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, whether you are presently tempted or not, again, think about the warning from 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let anyone who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you but that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Look for the way of escape. Pray. Preach scripture to yourself. Seek help. If you're married, seek help first and foremost from your spouse. They have been, you've been given each other to help in the fight, not only in the help that, that comes from coming together physically, but also to help with accountability and counsel and prayer. So again, we, we need to, to think about how to, to cultivate and physical intimacy. And moving quickly with these, these last two points, we also need to remember, you need to remember faithfulness to your covenant. Another way to protect marriage is by remembering that your marriage is a covenantal relationship. We've talked a lot about covenants through our studies of Genesis and Exodus as well as in our church camp. So what's a covenant? Well, I like Ligon Duncan's simple definition of a covenant as a, a binding relationship with blessing and obligation. A covenant relationship is a binding relationship with blessing and obligation. Now, this is true in our covenantal relationship with God, and it's true of all covenants. There are blessings and there are obligations to the members of the covenant, and that relationship is binding. When I, when I officiate a wedding, I, I like to have couples stick to the traditional vows because of the, the meaning that's embedded in these. The couple both affirm and commit to live together after God's ordinance in the holiest state of matrimony to love, comfort, honor, and keep in sickness and in health and forsaking all others to keep each other only as long as they both shall live. And the husband vows to take his wife to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and cherish forever according to God's holy ordinance. And the wife vows the same to her husband. So, but when I officiate a wedding, I'm not the one joining the couples together. They are not the ones joining themselves together. It is God who joins this couple together. And speaking of the sanctity of marriage, Jesus appeals again to creation, the creation of marriage in Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6. He answered the Pharisees who were, were challenging him on, on this issue of marriage. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They were no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, this, this, 
the, the idea of the permanence of marriage and the, the sanctity of marriage is, is a big part of the reason why God says in, in Malachi 2.16, and, uh, and I think the, the NASB, NIV, and King James are better than the ESV here. God says, I hate divorce. God hates divorce. In part because of the covenantal relationship in marriage. But there's an even greater reason why God hates divorce. We see in our last point that in your marriage, you're imaging Christ and the church. So yes, this is, this is a violation of the covenant that, that you both have made between each other and with God. But the, the idea of the, the idea of, of separating yourself from your spouse and of, of, of bringing another person, either in, in thought, word, or deed, bring another person into your marriage relationship is, is adulterous, and it's a picture of spiritual adultery. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, we see that, that God refers to Israel as an unfaithful wife. Just a couple of verses, Deuteronomy 31, 16. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Moses was about to die. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. They will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. It's all over the place in Judges, in Judges, in, in Judges 2, 16 and 17. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. In the book of Hosea, we see a living parable of the prophet with an adulterous wife. And so this, this picture of, of faithfulness in marriage does not just point to itself. It points beyond itself to something far greater. This marriage points to God's redeeming love, to his elect chosen as his bride out of their wickedness and from the wickedness around them. Ray Ortland Jr. says that, that the post-fall humanity adulterated by sin, the Bible and the Bible unfold the drama of a loving God winning back to himself a pure bride for her one husband. And so the way that, that you live in fidelity in marriage reflects your fidelity to God. And when you begin to understand increasingly who God is, you understand that there's, there's more than enough in, in God to satisfy. But we realize that we're fighting against the flesh that, that, that still seeks to find its, its pleasure and its satisfaction in the creature instead of in the creator. God is a jealous God. And nothing provokes him more than that we, when we prefer other things besides him and give others affection which belongs to him alone. And so you see how, how marriage reflects that relationship between, between God and his people. Your marriage is designed by God to reflect the gospel. Please turn with me 
before we close to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and, and this, this very well-known passage in verses uh, t- uh, 22 to 33. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage. You know it well, but, but look here first at verses um, 22 to 24. Here we have the, the picture of wives submitting to their husbands as to the Lord. And so the picture of the wife before the husband is a picture of the church submitting to Christ. Now, if you think that's difficult, and it is, because you are not submitting to Christ, you are are submitting to a a sinful man. We need to read on. At, At verses 25 and following, the husband is called to love his wife as Christ loves the church. So this is more than just leadership and submission. The man loves, the man leads, the man sacrifices as Christ, and the woman submits and respects as the church. And so marriage, your marriage, reflects Christ and the church. And then in verses 33 to, to 30, 31 to 33, we see Paul brings us this argument to a close. But again, the basis uh, is of in creation. Paul in verse 31 quotes Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says in, verses, in verse 32 what it's all about. He says, the mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And he goes on, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, wives are commanded to love their husbands as well, but, but I would, would argue that it's, it's, it's easier sometimes for a woman to love than to a man. That it comes more naturally to, to many women who are, are more nurturing than men. That's not true all the time, but, but in general, it comes more easily. And so the command is specific to men. But again, women are called to love their husbands as well. But the command to, to submit is specifically to the woman. That she is to submit to the man. Now this, again, is, is especially if you're married to an unbeliever, this, this can can seem impossible. But by God's grace, God has, has given you the church to help you and to encourage you in this. And woman, if, if you have a husband who is, is chronically sinning against you in really wicked ways, and is not walking in repentance, that, then you need to go and, and talk to somebody from the church who can help you. And if this man continues to, to, to fail to repent of this, this will lead in discipline out of the church. So you're not left alone to, to muddle through this on your own. You've been given a church family who's there to help you and to, to walk with you in this. The ultimate reason why God commands that we do not commit adultery is because our marriages reflect Christ in the church. This is the ultimate reason why God commands that we uphold the sanctity of marriage. And again, when we consider the the requirements of this commandment, none of us can say we've arrived. None of us can say we've lived up to these, these commands. But church, be encouraged. 
Now, I don't know all that goes on in your home, but I see couples fighting for their marriages. I see couples repenting when they fight in their marriages. I see singles seeking purity. I see, see women trying to honor those who are in authority. I see women dressing with modesty. I, I see men trying to avert their eyes. I see seniors whose lives have been characterized by fidelity in body and mind and word. Brothers and sisters, your marriages and your attitude towards marriage increasingly proclaim the gospel. Your marriage proclaims the gospel. The fact that you are still married proclaims the gospel. Now, maybe as we think about these things, that there's been, the Holy Spirit has, has convicted you of, of some things that, that you need to repent of. Because I know that it's not all the case. I, always the case. I know that you struggle. I know that I struggle. Again, what is the trajectory of your life? What direction is your life going? Are you, are you growing in obedience to these things? Is your marriage growing in its reflection of the gospel? Are you turning to Christ when you fail? Are you turning to Christ when you're tempted? Hebrews 2.18, For because he himself suffered and when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Christ is able to help you in whatever temptations you face. Because when he was tempted, he overcame that temptation. He overcame that temptation for you. And if you are here as a believer, then his righteousness is credited to you. He is interceding for you all the time, even at this very moment. But if you are here as someone who is engaging in sexual behavior outside of God's plan and God's precept, I need to extend to you a warning. The warning is that if you do not repent, you will come under the judgment of God. Romans 8.13 says that, says that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's only one sin that will ever cause anyone to be disciplined out of the church, and that is a failure to repent. As I quoted earlier from, from Hebrews chapter 13, God will judge the immoral person and the adulterer. But it also need to offer to you, if you're walking in willful sin, an encouragement that God is able to forgive you. That because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are able to be forgiven for your sin. Whatever sin that is you're thinking of right now, God is able to forgive you. Your sin might be great, but his mercy is greater. God is able also not just to forgive you, but also to help you to overcome. 
1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Earlier, I referred to David, King David in his adultery. While we see his repentance discussed there in, in the passage, in the narrative, but, but we see his, his prayer of repentance um, expounded upon in Psalm 51. And this, we're told specifically when this happened, when the Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. And David cries out in verses one and two, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Make Psalm 51 your prayer of repentance. Whether you're here as a believer or as an unbeliever, make that your prayer of repentance. The answer is the same. The solution is the same. Flee to Christ. Also, you can go in confession to one another. We don't, we don't absolve each other of guilt. It's not confession like in the Roman Catholic Church. But James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That, that sin that you are doing in secret, your flesh and the enemy of your soul wants you to continue to indulge in that sin in secret. But by confessing it to God and by going to a, a mature brother or sister, person of the same sex, and going to them and confessing that to them, this can be a means of grace to help you to find healing and freedom from that sin. Now, I have counseled more men on the issue of lust than any other. But I've also seen more men grow in victory over lust than any other sin. So there's a warning for those who are walking in unrepentant sin. But there's encouragement that you can find forgiveness in Christ. And for those who are here as born-again followers of Jesus Christ, Jesus paid the penalty for your disobedience, for all of your disobedience, past, present, and future. Jesus Christ lived in perfect obedience to this commandment and all of the commandments, the whole moral law of God. If you are a Christian, all of Christ's obedience is credited to your account. All of it. Jesus even had a harlot wipe his feet with her hair. And he didn't even have a fleeting, sinful thought. His righteousness, his perfect righteousness is credited to those who have turned from their sin and put their faith in him. Any expression of intimacy besides the beautiful, God-designed union of conjugal intimacy within a complementary and covenant relationship that reflect Christ in the church, falls under the category of adultery. Outside of the gospel, this is impossible. There is no help outside the gospel. You'll be continually defeated by your sin because you need a new heart. But if you are here as one who has faith in the gospel, 
Go to the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. Find the forgiveness that you need and the strength that you need in order to seek to obey God and to grow in your obedience in upholding the sanctity of marriage. Let's pray together. Our glorious Lord and Heavenly Father, we praise you for the ways that that you have given us the remarkable privilege of reflecting the gospel in our marriages and in those who are single. They also have been given the privilege of upholding the sanctity of marriage and the ways that, that they seek to protect it protect their own hearts and the hearts of those around them. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your perfect obedience. Lord, you who loved and love your heavenly Father with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and perfectly love your neighbor as yourself. Lord, we praise you for your perfect righteousness credited to us. And Lord, we praise you for the death that you died in our place. And Lord, we praise you that you have been resurrected from the dead to show that we have been justified, to show that you are satisfied for his sacrifice on our behalf. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you have ascended to the Father and that you are now interceding for us, helping us to obey this and every commandment for your glory, for our good, and for the building of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.